how's it going? This is uh, T, Trevor, this is Champagne Sharks. You can find me on Twitter at Ricky Rolls, R-I-C-K-Y-R-A-W-L-S, no underscore. And we have with us Ian Danskin from Innuendo Studios. You want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Ian Danskin from Innuendo Studios. How's everybody doing tonight? Uh, and also, let people know where to find you and what you do. Yes, okay. So, um, I'm a YouTube video essayist. Um, you can find my YouTube channel at Innuendo Studios. I'm on Twitter at Innuendo Studios. Tumblr is Innuendo Studios. Patreon is Innuendo Studios. Pretty much all Innuendo Studios across the board. And, yeah, it's um, very consistent. Yeah, thank you. It's branding. Um, and yeah, my uh, my I have a YouTube series where I make video essays kind of started out as a channel mostly about like video games and web culture. And it's kind of expanded out into talking about films and art and more recently, uh, very explicitly political videos. Um, and I think that might be why you invited me on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, and you know something? Explain that pivot because it's a very interesting uh, pivot. It's a uh, because it's interesting that you made that kind of late pivot, but based on what little you've done in that space, it's pretty good. So <laughs> it's kind of surprising to me, but also maybe it's because you're not mired in that world. It allows you to take a look from a fresh lens, but. Uh, I was wondering, like, uh, where did that pivot uh, come from? Well, it's actually I think it's kind of interesting because um, I was maybe one of the more political YouTube channels that wasn't explicitly about politics. Like um, one of the earliest video series I did was like first video I did was just talking about like, here's a game designer and everybody hates him. Let's talk about why. And then I made a couple of like, here's why I like adventure games. And then here's here's a look at the Call of Duty franchise. And then the next thing I did was like this big six part series about like Gamergate and the harassment of Anita Sarkeesian, um, which is all just a bunch of like angry anti-feminist, predominantly white men on the Internet and sort of using a series of things that happen in gaming culture as kind of a jumping off point to talk about like anti-feminism and male privilege and racism within the gaming community, but also like kind of as topics on their own. So to me, it didn't seem like that big a pivot to make similar videos that just didn't use video games as a jumping off point. Um, and, you know, sometime around, I don't know, November 2016, suddenly it felt really important to talk about politics more. Yeah, you know what's interesting? After I asked the question... And then you started explaining it. I realized it's actually kind of a dumb question. Like, <laughs> like to actually ask, how do you go from video games to politics? When I you started explaining, I was like, duh, like that's actually probably like I would never have thought this years ago, but it's probably the most radicalizing force right now is uh, is video games specifically and just quote unquote geek culture in, in general like i think it's actually going to become a normal thing to hear people say uh i got into white nationalism from video games or i got into uh i got into whatever from uh st reading star wars reviews about the new trilogy like yeah. it's i think that is going to become an increasingly uh normal thing yeah the fact like, that, like, like, like what do you Oh, go ahead. What do you think that's about? Yeah, I was going to say, what do you think that's about? Well, I mean, I think that like when when white nationalists or or men's rights activists or any other like really gross bigoted group is looking to recruit people, they just kind of look for what communities exist where people feel kind of like people who are not that disenfranchised feel disenfranchised. And also what is a community that doesn't already have a lot of like racial or gender or like orientation discourse already going on in it. And I just feel like for whatever reason, geek culture was the place where they found purchase, you know, like it's just there hasn't been as much like if you look at film discourse at large, there is a long history of like racial and post-colonial and feminist discourse there. But video game or like nerd movies specifically has been kind of cloistered off from that. And they just found an in there. I mean, they would have found an in wherever they could find one. And that just happened to be a real critical mass of people who were not used to having their identities challenged. 
I have a view that um, I think one of the problems with geek culture in general is I think because geek culture is so kind of um, on a whole kind of very passion based and kind of anti-intellectual. And I'm not saying that in an insulting way. I mean, like to be a geek about a certain property or whatever, because, you know, I've been into comic books, I've been into like certain franchises. So I speak from experience. It's kind of, um, a very passionate, like, like you can see when there's a review on something that geeks don't agree with, they can get very, um, passionate. So, a problem I kind of find on both sides is that a lot of pro geeks don't really do a good job at articulating why certain things are good. They just kind of treat it similar to their hobbies. Like, of course it's good. You see what I'm saying? Whereas film, I feel like film had a much richer vocabulary or intellectual kind of standing to its uh, anti-racist, anti-sexist, you know, work. There's like talk about like the male gaze, Mm -hmm. all these different things. And I feel like Sarkeesian was kind of trying to kind of bring that discourse um, to film, you know, like it wasn't just like, hey, we just want diversity we just want representation she was kind of trying to give a intellectual foundation that i think a lot of um geek i feel like a lot of geek culture i'm not saying this to be disparaging but i feel like a lot of it is kind of based on knee-jerk um reactions it's just you know being passionate it's about being about collecting being completist about representation yeah yeah i think so Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering if maybe, you know, that's another reason why these people were able to get kind of um, a foothold, because I think a lot of people weren't very prepared to um, argue back. I feel like that's changing. That's one of the reasons why I really liked your series. And, and, you know, there's others, too, who kind of can really deconstruct and, you know, kind of play the game like not fall into the discourse traps or <laughs> go emotionally or whatever you know that's that's why i really like uh what you were doing in your series because it was meta-analysis it was kind of looking at the argument behind the argument so to speak mm, thank you but i think i'm jumping ahead of myself because i didn't <laughs> even let you describe what what the series is okay, so, sure let's back um, up <laughs> yeah yeah let's back up what is the um series that you are currently working on? Uh, So the series that I started um, late last year is called The Alt-Right Playbook. Um, And it's a series that, oh, I might even be able to quote it verbatim. Uh, (laughs) I I gave a talk on this just the other day. So uh, it's a series that collects and dissects the various rhetorical tactics that the far right uses to legitimize itself and gain influence over the Republican Party. Yeah, I think that was word for word. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's basically like uh, something that I had originally when I did my series on like Gamergate and everything. Uh, one thing I had been doing was just collecting a lot of different like if you see angry, privileged people on the Internet or in person, there were a lot of different argument tactics that I saw them using. And I was just kind of collecting them and trying to study each one and figure out what what actually is going on. And that was originally going to be like one of the videos in that series. And then, you know, the rest of it just blew up to much bigger than I expected. I thought it was like, oh, I might do two videos. I'll do one that like introduces this concept and then another that lists a bunch of tactics that they use. And then that first half turned out to be six videos. And I was like, oh, I'll save that other bit for later. Um, And then kind of Gamergate fell out of the discourse, although I wouldn't say it really ended exactly. And then a lot of people from Gamergate made their way into what became the alt-right. And then the alt-right became really instrumental in the election of Donald Trump. And so I came back to that idea and I, you know, I went back to the library and studied as much cognitive science and alt-right research that I could. And I'm still doing that research. And I've just uh, started making a video about each rhetorical tactic And talking about like, okay, so here's one tactic. Here's the scenario in which it would arise. Here's how the left tends to perceive what's going on. 
And then here's what the far right is actually doing. And here's sort of the worldview that is behind that. And that's why what the left tends to do doesn't always work because we don't actually understand what's going on. Um, that is that is so nutty to me. Like, yeah. How do you just go to the library and just read cognitive science <laughs> and just go and do this? And it's actually, um, you know, very good. Like, 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 like that's that's very like, for example, me, I'm, I'm very much like a psychology nerd. Like I read, read, read psychology like for years, like just for fun. Yeah. It's, like I actually like reading about it just just for myself. It's just something I like to do. So th- when I saw like your video, I'm like, oh, you know, that's right. Yeah, that's that's good. Like, like more people should um, listen to this or whatever. So it's surprising to me to, to hear that you just said, hey, I'm going to go to the library. And yeah, yeah. Just read up on this because. I feel like this needs addressing. And then it's like, what did you read? Like, like how long did it take? I'm I'm fast. I'm fascinated by this. Well, it's really hard to like determine how long it took or like what all I read, because a lot of it is drawing on things that I've been reading, you know, stuff that I was reading for pleasure at the time and then much later found a use for. So, you know, it's like articles that you read or books that you read that you log away in your head. And then years later, you don't necessarily remember where you learned this or that particular theory. Um, but the stuff that I, I started reading specifically to research for this series, um, I think the most useful things are, uh, there's a website called data and society, which has a whole lot of like deep research essays on a lot of them on the alt-right or the far right, other parts of the far right. Um, there is one called media manipulation and disinformation online, which is by Alice Marwick and, another writer whose name escapes me. Um, and that that paper is really useful. And there's a bunch of other really useful papers on that website. Um, and then I've been reading, I read George. Oh, 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 wait, wait, go ahead. Quick question. Me, media manipulation, and, uh, that, and that paper you described. Yeah. Is that on Data and Society? Yeah, it's on Data and Society. All the papers there are free, so anyone can go read them. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'm sorry, you go on. Go on. Um, and then I read, like, sort of... It, used to be kind of a handbook for rhetoric on the left. It's called Don't Think of an Elephant by George Lakoff, which I don't agree with everything in it, but a lot of the core points it was making uh, have been really, really useful, like lenses to look at the right through. Um, And then more recently, I've been reading The Authoritarians by Bob Altemeyer, which has been really helpful. Yeah, I haven't read that, but a lot of people have recommended that one to me. Yeah, I mean, he's been like, he's a cognitive scientist who's been studying specifically like right wing people with authoritarian leanings for like 30 years. And he just has a ton of crunchy, crunchy data that you can read through. Um, And it's like very accessible. He's like really jokey. And I wouldn't say he's that funny, but it makes it a really easy read. Um, I actually have like, so when I was in college, I would do these Twitter storms called hashtag Ian live tweets his homework. And, you know, that was just like, I'm taking this class on industrial design. So here's me talking about like postmodern chair designers or something. Um, and since I graduated now I have hashtag Ian live tweets his research. So a lot of, um, the authoritarians by Bob Altemeyer has actually, I've been live tweeting a lot of the points of it. And so if you go to hashtag Ian live tweets his research, you can read a lot of uh, my thoughts on that book so far. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. One thing, you know, you know, it's funny. One thing I asked you if you read, um, was, uh, the, what's it? Anti-Semite in Jew by Sartre. Mm. And what was interesting, you said, uh, you said, you said no. And, I totally get it because when something is true, multiple people can independently come to the same uh, conclusions. But I was showing this guy, Michael Brooks. He has uh, He's a co-host of Majority Report with Sam Cedar, mm. who recently got into trouble with um, the alt-right. Uh, I was saying, oh, you know, he's, he's just got in trouble with Cernovich. You should check out this guy I plan to have on, on uh, the show because it's coincidentally enough he's has a series in the alt-right and he had said the same thing i, I played on uh, the first video and he said has this guy re- read on um, anti-semite jew by sartre like totally un <laughs> unprompted uh, by me but i think that's a uh, high praise because i think that's a great thinker and a great great book but yeah that's why it's so surprising to me to just hear you just went to the library and you know read up it's uh pretty impressive 
Yeah, I mean, some of it is also lived experience. Like I spent uh, one thing that I advocated for at the end of my series on Gamergate was that we should try people like me anyway, like very privileged, you know, cishet white men should make some effort to talk to other cishet white men when they are going down that road and to try to intervene more. And then in the end, like the first video in the outright playbook says, okay, that was maybe not the best advice. Let's talk about why it's more complicated than that. But immediately after releasing that series, I spent a lot of time trying to talk to Gamergators. Um, And I have like a long history of like uh, a lot of my friends from high school were like tea partiers in the making. And I spent a lot of time like arguing with them in high school and then debating them on Facebook once they grew up. Um, And, you know, I have a lot of conservative Midwestern relatives that I have gotten a lot of debates with. So like it's a mix of book learning and interpersonal conversation. Got it. Got it. And um, why is it why is it a bad idea? <laughs> uh, do, you still believe, do you still believe it's a bad idea? Well, I think I don't know that it's always a bad idea, right? It's more that there are times where it's a bad idea and I didn't feel confident that I could tell when it's a good idea from when it's a bad idea. And when it's a bad idea, there's often a risk of making things worse. So um, when I told everybody like, hey, you know, we we need to talk across the aisle more, we need to intervene more, not so much because we need to change their minds, but because if people are going to say like bigoted things and those ideas are going to spread, if if young people growing up on the Internet see that stuff said and they don't see anybody challenging it, they get the idea that, oh, this must be what everybody thinks and that it's important for other privileged people to say, actually, a lot of privileged people don't think that. And we actually think it's harmful. Um, and originally, I framed that as you should talk to the person and disagree with the person. And then a lot of people that those types of people have harassed came to me and said, Um, When you talk to that person, because you are privileged, that person will probably not vent their frustrations by harassing you or trying to hack your email. But sometimes they vent their frustrations by attacking us instead. Um, And that when you rile up the kind of person who is like either a harasser or is networked with people who are harassers, sometimes you create problems for people that are completely third party to the conversation without even knowing it's happening. Um, And so that's when I sort of shifted to saying, okay, it is maybe better if you're trying to reach if you're not trying to change the person's mind, you're trying to reach the same people they're trying to reach. Maybe you can reach those people without necessarily talking to the person in specific. And if you need to talk to the person, like if you're actually trying to persuade that person, maybe it's better to have that conversation in private and recognizing that like debunking a person and persuading a person are two different things that require two different sets of like strategy. That differentiation that you made, I like that differentiation. And I had a similar kind of insight that revolved around the same differentiation that I want to make clear is not meant to be a moral equivalency, Mm -hmm. what I'm about to say. But I know it can kind of seem like it. But I think that there is a certain inflexibility that comes from... And I'm not sure what to call this crowd because they've turned everything into a pejorative, hmm. you know? So I don't want to call them the Tumblr crowd because that sounds like a pejorative. And you can't say social justice type anymore, a social justice warrior, because that's... But a certain crowd that has a certain type of inflexibility that keeps them from even engaging in that, engaging that second type of person you talked about. You know, that person who the alt-writer is trying to convert. Like, I agree with you. You shouldn't try to argue with that alt-writer, at least not earnestly, because, you know, it creates this kind of uh, collateral damage. And that second part you said about, hey, we can at least try to get, talk to the person that they're trying to get, even if it's privately, you know, that person on the fence. And I think there's a certain inflexibility um, as far as we're right and we don't have to talk to you. Yeah. That kind of ends up extending even to that second category of person uh, that you said. And I do think people should try to at least engage that second type of person because sometimes that person will feel like, hey, this other person is a bigger scumbag, but at least he's the only person who's kind of validating 
um, my con- my concerns or whatever, even if they are irrational concerns. Like, like they're not saying that. Like, like I'm saying that as myself. They're probably irrational concerns. But like, for example, with Trump, when Trump, uh, I use this example a lot. So sorry for the people who listen to this show and are tired of hearing about it. But if I haven't heard it, it's new to me. <laughs> Okay, there you go. When I was watching the Trump versus Hillary debate, uh, Trump kept bringing up about NAFTA and trade deals and how, you know, immigrants and illegal immigration uh, hurt all these poor white people. And then Hillary, and he was blaming Hillary for it, and Hillary was just like scoffing and like, oh, Donald, like, you know, everyone knows it's not true or whatever. And then I was saying she's doing something bad because she should at least acknowledge that people feel this way because whether he has no real solutions or not, or his solutions are based on hate in their mind, they're going to see him and think, well, at least this guy is admitting there's a problem. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's always one of the tricky things when, when dealing with like sort of the reactionary type is that they're often like, very angry and they're often often that anger comes from a place of like fear or pain and even if that pain or fear doesn't make any logical sense like the things they're upset about are not things that are actually a threat to them um or they're upset about conspiracies that aren't real like the pain and the fear are are real and that's a really really difficult thing to contend with because you can't exactly reason someone out of this really strong activating emotion that they have and but it's also really hard to empathize with because it's like your your fear and your pain. It's real fear. It's real, real pain. But it's coming from a very, very ugly place that like you're not going to feel better until you get away from that. Yeah. And some people, I guess it's a debate some people have. Some people say, I don't want to talk to I don't want to spend the time differentiating between the people who are on the cusp but savable and the people who are lost causes. Mm. So I'm just going to kind of write them all off with the uh, brush. Like, like some people will try to engage everybody, which I think is wrong. Like like they'll try to argue earnestly with that insincere alt-writer that you make the subject of this series, mm-hmm. you know, which is wrong in its, in its own way. But then there's other people who are like, I'm going to throw it all away from the Richard Spencer type to... That confused kid who, you know, feels like this irrational fear of um whatever. Like and yeah, I think it's gonna be something that a lot of people are gonna have to contend with. For example, like right now with Star Wars and The Last Jedi, for example, you know, you get this weird like there's all these articles going both ways, and so much of them are not about the movie. It's just these weird anti-social justice warrior people on say YouTube. Versus these, um, hey, you guys who don't like Star Wars The Last Jedi are the new Gamergate. Hmm. And when I'm watching it, I'm thinking, you know, there might be somebody who just is a little irrational about why they hate The Last Jedi. But if they only see these two options, you know, this crazy uh, anti-social justice warrior, borderline alt-right YouTube guy who at least covers part of like what they don't like and the other option is if you hate this movie you're automatically a misogynist and a, and a racist you're kind of opening the door for them to just say hey let me listen to these guys like at least create a space to kind of peel off you know to discuss the movie without accusations to kind of peel off that you know you know what I'm saying? I'm, yeah, I don't know if yeah. I'm the argument, the argument becomes so much the subject that it's really hard to talk about the movie at all without having to take a side in an argument. And then it's really hard to just say, like, I, I was disappointed or I really loved it, but not necessarily because I feel better than the people who didn't. Yeah, exactly. And it's on both sides. Like, you know, you like there's not space to say I loved it. I don't think it was a big thing about racism or anti-feminism. It was just a good popcorn movie. Like on the, on the, on the positive side, you can't do that either. You either have to be a culture warrior for liking it or a culture warrior for hating it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, uh, the discourse is getting so strangely, uh, poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but uh, going back to um, your series, like, what is the alt right? Like the most basic uh, question I can ask you. <laughs> um, I feel like it. Uh, I always have to be like, well, it's complicated. Um, because on the one hand, like the alt-right is a very specific group of people who identify with the label. Like um, the term was coined by Richard Spencer, who is an avowed white nationalist. Like he's the head of the National Policy Institute, um, which is, you know, a white supremacist think tank. And his the stated aim of his organization is let's find ways to remove non-white people from America. Um, and in that sense, it's very much just like, OK, we need a name for our white nationalist movement that will distance us from Nazis and and, you know, like apartheid uh, and will just sort of sound like it's, oh, you know, we're just an alternative to the regular Republicans. And that's like a very specific group of people. But then if you think of alt-right less as like, oh, it's a label people adopt and more of like it's kind of a diagnosis now because that group of people is now interconnected with so many other groups that are so many different types of bigots. Um, like I've listed, I listed a whole bunch of them in the first video where it's like, yeah, you know, there's white nationalists. There's also extreme anti-feminists. Um, there's like xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, classism, ableism. Um, there's a whole lot of authoritarianism in there. And it becomes this big kind of nebula of really, really gross stuff that is at least so deeply integrated with the group that calls themselves that label that I don't think that group really controls the label at all anymore. And it's kind of gotten beyond them. Yeah. One thing you mentioned in your video is a uh, pickup artist too. They also, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very strange umbrella. Yeah. 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 So there's like, there's this big, I don't know. They're kind of good at coalition building all these bigots. Um, I kind of wish the left could learn a bit from them. <laughs> But they're they're very integrated. And a lot of the time it's like there's really, really serious fundamental ideological differences between these groups, but they are willing to work together because they at least have common enemies or they have some common goals. And they just kind of figure like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When we get power, then we'll sort out whether or not Jewish people are evil. But in the meantime, let's just get together because we all agree that like other non whites are evil. And you're so right about how bad um, the left is at coalition building. Mm -hmm. I just, it's it's just weird. Like I, I have like my own theories about why that is. But I mean, why do you think? Why do you think that is? I mean, it's it's hard to say that the left as a whole is bad at coalition building because in a lot of ways the alt right is a very fringe element of the right. They just are very very influential. And on the left, I would say that a lot of fringe groups on the left are also pretty good at coalition building, but they are not nearly as influential as the alt-right is to Republicans. Um, so, I mean, I think the Democratic Party as a whole is very resistant to a certain type of change. And I mean, this is, this is me sort of talking from my gut. I have not researched this as thoroughly if I, as I've researched other things. But um, there does seem to kind of be this idea on on the left that like, well, what the Democratic Party needs to do is you've got your Democrats who are always going to vote Democrat. You've got your Republicans who are always going to vote Republicans. And we're all just fighting over the people in the middle. And a lot of the coalition building on the left is about like, well, actually, there's all these people who aren't voting for either party, either because their votes are being suppressed or because neither party really represents the kind of strong leftist movement that they want to be part of. And if maybe instead of fighting over those centrists and, you know, sanding off the leftier parts of the Democratic Party, we instead pivoted more to the left and brought in more voters, we could just outnumber those centrists instead of fighting over them. But there seems to be like a really, really big schism on on the left right now between whether or not the Democrats should pivot farther left or if they should pivot more to the center. Um, I would prefer we pivot to the left, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a popular um, saying and meme that goes on that says um, that uh, liberals or centrists hate um, far leftists more than they hate fascists. And I do think a lot of the discourse is kind of um, showing that to a, to a degree, because there was the whole never Trump thing that happened on the right. Right. Mm -hmm. And. There were all these people principle like these people don't represent us. Uh, 
Never Trump. And and National Review had this whole, you know, Never Trump issue just all about how he's not representing what the real right is all about. And then as soon as they realized, oh, oh wait a minute, he's actually a viable candidate. Yeah. A lot of it just kind of disappeared. And they just started working on what they could push through um uh, push through Congress. And a lot of these intellectuals just went right back to um punching at liberals like like you know like you start realizing okay the only real problem turned out to be viability not really uh belief it was viability and coarseness like these people were just a little bit too crude and coarse for them but you know they were willing to just pivot immediately and just use it once they realized they could win whereas i feel like liberals are having a harder time doing that uh, they can't try to figure out how to incorporate uh, this growing left leftist movement that's happening post Occupy, post Bernie Sanders, post uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and try to find a way to uh, work with it. They seem to be divided about whether to try to suppress it and fight it, or you know, just double down on being centrist. Yeah, I mean, so I, yeah, I agree with you there. To be fair to the Democrats, like I don't envy their position because. Like a lot of Republican rhetoric is very nostalgic, right? Like the big slogan is make America great again. It's this very backwards focused thing. Um, I, I feel like modern Republicans idolize the 80s and 80s Republicans idolize the 50s. There's always this idea that things used to be better um, and liberals have led us astray. And all we have to do is get things back to the way they were. And they never have to sit down and articulate what was better about that. So every every person on the right gets to imagine how things were better and just believe anyone who says we're going to go back to the past is talking about the past of their imagining, which, you know, they can have a thousand different pasts they're imagining, but they all think they're thinking of the same one. But the thing about Democrats is like Democrats, if we're if we're actually thinking of ourselves as like progressives and we're trying to move forward and we say, no, actually, like the past is not the direction we want to go. We don't want to go back to the 50s with segregation. We don't want to go back to the 80s with like Reaganomics, not that we ever truly left Reaganomics behind. Um, but in order to give the same kind of unified idea, we have to actually paint a way forward. And it's really like. A phrase that I like to use is, you know, there's a hundred ways forward, but only one way back. And it's like there's there's all these different directions the Democratic Party could take and unifying that into a vision of the future that is as concrete to people on the left as the vision of the past is to people on the right is a very difficult task. And there's a whole lot of different groups who have a whole lot of different desires that they're trying to fit under one umbrella. And that's very, very difficult. And and it's it's a crappy position for them to be in. But my empathy only goes so far because it's like, well, yeah, but that is that is your job and you do need to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. It's hard. But I mean, what are the options? Yeah. Uh, On a side note, I like professional speed bag on Richard Spencer. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I was happy with that. I don't rely heavily (laughs) on jokes in my videos, but whenever I think of a good one, I'm usually really proud of it. Yeah. Why do you think, right, that. A lot of uh, centrist and liberal media people are so bad at this. Because in the series, you bring up the dapper white nationalist um, kind of snafu where they are they don't know if they should be fawning over uh, Richard Spencer or condemning him in these profile pieces. And why do you think that is? I mean, it's a really thorny issue. Um and again, I'm going to I'm going to do the the guy thing and be like, well, I don't know. But here's uh, my opinion, even though I don't know. <laughs> um, but I do think a lot like a thing that I think about a lot, I would say, is that. Um, oh, did I just lose it? Oh, I just lost it. Hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. <laughs> it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, right. OK, so we talked about pickup artists earlier. Um, and one of the yeah. things that pickup artists do right is. There's there's this system of flirtation that is the norm, right? Like it's a system. Um, It's a way of people expressing interest to each other without necessarily putting a lot on the line. You don't come out and say, hello, I'm attracted to you. I would like to take you home tonight. You you know, you drop little hints and see if the person picks them up or not. And if they don't pick them up, then you can just kind of excuse yourself. And no one ever had to actually come out and reject you. And what pickup artists do is they recognize, oh, there's this system of flirtation and politeness. And if there's a system, then a system can be gamed. And what they do is they like follow a lot of the 
letter to letter law of flirtation and and politeness while violating the spirit of it. They're like, oh, we are following the rules of flirtation. We are just going to treat you as though you are flirting with us and we are going to respond in the way that a person actively being flirted with would respond. We are going to treat you as though you are expressing interest. And that system doesn't have any mechanism for like, oh, what do I do? How do I politely let someone know that they've misread me? And pickup artists are all about like the whole system exists so that you never have to reject a person, um, which means that if you put yourself in a position where you treat someone like they've said yes, there is no mechanism for removing yourself from that. And I feel like that's a lot of what's going on in politics as well, is there's a lot of like obeying the letter of the law while violating all of the norms that the law is built on. And I feel like our our media doesn't know how to handle that when it's like, well, there's there's a person is a president. We're supposed to cover them the way that we cover presidents. But it's like, well, this person is actually violating all the norms of a president. But we're supposed to treat people who say, oh, you're violating norms as scaremongers, because usually that's what it is. And in a lot of ways, the Democrats suffer from the same problem is like we don't know how to deal with someone who is actually violating norms because we trust the norms to save us. Now, what if, you know, I'm going to take a um, place of a hypothetical critic. Let's say I'm someone who's saying, hey, I don't believe these people have this kind of master plan that you're describing in these (laughs) videos. I, I don't think they have some kind of meeting where they sit down, um, and plan all this complicated stuff. You're just reading too much into it. Do these guys have meetings to coordinate these, uh, strategies that you're describing in the videos. What would you want to say to someone who said that? Um, well, something that I try to hint at in the videos themselves is that like, it's just kind of, it's just sort of like, like germs almost, right? Like, uh, the germ that can't survive in your body dies quickly. And the germ that can lives and it passes on its genes. And then, you know, you pass it on to somebody else. And that's how viruses spread like bad. The, the right can make as many bad arguments as it wants, as many horrible rhetorical stances as it wants. And the ones that don't get traction will die quickly. And the ones that do get traction will proliferate. So it doesn't necessarily mean there's a divine strategy behind it. It's just people do whatever works and then whatever works spreads the farthest. And I I think that is kind of one of the most powerful things about the right is you have people doing things without even knowing why they work. And in a lot of ways, you have people spreading racist rhetoric without even knowing that it's racist rhetoric just because it serves a purpose in that moment. And in, and that's also a concept that comes out in uh, behaviorism where it's called a reinforcer. Like mm. if something gets a good result, it's considered uh, a reinforcer and the person just keeps doing All it needs to do is get uh, the result and that's enough for them to... Um, keep uh doing it so well if i use the word reinforcer in a future video it's your fault (laughs) okay okay it's it's uh there's also something you said that i thought was pretty good and i would like you to explain what do you mean by the right sells certainty better than the left sells truth um so that's sort of the crux of uh of one of the videos where i'm talking about like Everybody who views politics has a bunch of different models for how the world might work in their head. Like this is something that George Lakoff talks about a lot in his writing. And again, I don't agree with all of it, but this is one of the things that I do agree with Um, is this idea that like you have all these different ways of framing politics in your head. And one he keeps coming back to is like the right tends to frame like the family unit as there's the strong father at the top and then the wife is below that and then the kids are below that, where the left tends to frame the family unit more as, oh, you have these nurturant parents who are roughly equal and they're both supposed to elevate their kids up to their level. Like the whole idea is it's supposed to be very The ultimate goal is everybody's roughly on the same footing, where on the right, it's much more like stratified and very hierarchical. Um, And these metaphors can get activated 
when we look at politics, right? Like uh, the democratic idea of government is very cooperative based, where right now, at least the Republican idea of government is very like our team is supposed to be the strongest. And if the other team is in power, we're going to filibuster every bill they put out. And if they give us a tax bill that we don't have the votes to turn down, we're just going to shut down the government until they change it. Right. It's, It's not cooperative at all. And so when you're having a debate or when there's rhetoric around People have both of these models in them, like everybody watches TV, so they're familiar with both family models. And so there becomes this like push and pull of which one of these metaphors can we activate in the people watching the debate or the people participating in the conversation. And the idea of like moral certitude, which is something that the right is really big on, is this idea of like, no, I am right. Like we like the cowboy metaphor, right? Like a. Bush sold himself as being a way better cowboy than Gore was. Um, And then there was almost this like fight over like, oh, no, Gore, how can you make yourself a better cowboy? And it's like, well, maybe distance yourself from the idea that being a cowboy is a good thing in a president. Um, And yeah, uh, that's that's like a thing. It's like this idea of moral certitude. Like, I know what's best. Father knows best. I will make the tough decisions and. Everything I say, I am very certain about. I don't waffle on the issues that can be very reassuring to people. Um, And if somebody tells you a lie that is very, very like comforting and is very like certain, the person is very, very certain in what they say. If they look more certain of the thing they're saying than the other person, even if what the other person is saying is actually truer, sometimes you are more reassured and you want to vote for the person who says the most reassuring thing. And now honesty is also a very powerful thing. And if you get the sense that someone is more truthful than the other person, you may choose them over the person who's very certain in something that's not true. But I find that Democrats try to go in that direction of like, okay, we're we're going to we're going to try to sell ourselves as the honest party. And the Republicans are trying to sell themselves as the party that's very sure of themselves. And the Republicans just tend to be better at that. And there is a phrase that my friend's wife loves to use. I'm not sure where she got it, but mm. it's a good phrase. Uh, wrong and strong. Like, you know, she'll call people mm. that, that person is wrong and strong. And she uses that to describe uh, people who are wrong, but they're so confident and outgoing and dynamic in their wrongness that, you know, they not only are just unable to be reached, but they actually seem. Um, more right than um, people who are actually right and how they end up like winning an argument or like winning an onlooker over by just how wrong and strong they are. So she always calls people like, oh, I'm not even going to get into the argument with her because she's wrong and strong. Hmm. And when I was watching your video and you described what you just described, I kept thinking like wrong and strong. Like he's right. That's the, that's what exactly what uh, the right is. They're good at being wrong and strong. It's a really good phrase, actually. Oh, I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah, I can't take I can't <laughs> yeah. take uh, I can't take credit for it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. She 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 nailed it. It's very catchy, wrong, wrong and strong, and it's very true. Yeah, and I mean, like Trump is kind of the apotheosis of that, right? Like he will never ever act as though he's wrong, no matter what he says. Yes, and he and he the wronger he gets, the stronger he acts. You know, it's very counterintuitive, and liberals are very much. Uh, the opposite. They get very uh, flustered, like you said, or indecisive yeah, and, or whatever. And I feel like part of it is that they're trying to play both games at once. They're simultaneously just trying to present themselves as right, but also present themselves as more certain than the right. And it's the fact that they kind of try to play two games at the same time that I worry about because they're activating their own like framing, but they're also activating the other person's framing and they're not as good at doing what the other person is doing. Uh, have you heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yes. Yeah. It, I mean, it's become kind of a cliche at this point yeah. <laughs> to uh, bring it up. And, and, and the right, you know, loves to use, like bring it up. But I do think, you know, a lot of that wrong and strong also comes from that. Like when you're trying to take in more points of view, when you're trying to educate yourself more, you kind of realize, you know, hey, the more I learn, the less I realize I know, whereas... A lot of these alt-right people you try to argue with, they've just started reading a couple of blogs and a couple of um, fringe books by a couple of alt-writers. And 
that little bit of research, you know, one or two evolutionary psychology books, maybe Charles Murray's Bell Curve, and now they're just jumping into an argument, you know, and how little research that they've done or just about that they've um, just picked up these books last week adds to that whole wrong and strong uh, effect as, as well, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like there's a different valuation of research, like having having a whole lot of information is not seen as valuable sometimes on the right. Um, and that's I don't know that that's nerve wracking for me. Yeah, especially because they are very fine with um, obvious advocacy as, you know, weighing it as much or more than something that's at least trying to be neutral or, you know, objective. Like, like to them, a screed by a right-wing blogger is as just, just as valuable a piece of source material as like four scientists authoring a paper hmm. that is very nuanced and weighs both sides. Like they have a flattening of evidence. I noticed that uh, makes it very hard to argue against. Cause in times where I've debated them, some of the things they'll put forward as, as evidence. I was like, this is just a guy in his basement hmm. who uh, hates black people. Like, like there's, there's nothing in here. Like, why are you even giving me to read? Like, this is, why is this even a, uh, legitimate thing to um, put in here. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like my dad, my dad has voted Democrat his entire life, but like he'll kind of do the same thing sometimes, you know, like he's he's on he's on my side, but he'll read some book and be like, oh, this book proves blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, well, dad, I don't think that's what the word prove means. Like somebody argued something. Uh, I, I don't know that the thing they're arguing yes. even has much data. Same with <laughs> Same with debunk. Like, like for example, they'll be like, oh, what you just put in there, that study, it's been debunked. And then I'm like, uh, who debunked it? This is news to me. And then to them, debunk means someone did a blog post saying it's wrong. Yeah. Like, like that's that's the idea of uh, debunking. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's, so it's proving a very, debunk. It's kind of a, there's lots of different perspectives in the world. So choose the one that feels true to you. As opposed to like, well, there's lots of different perspectives, but some are materially more convincing than others. And I don't know, like on the one hand, I don't want to disparage it because like for a lot of parts of life, you do need to acknowledge that like, hey, nobody's objective on this. And sometimes you do just kind of have to go with your gut. And that might work really well, like interpersonally, you know, like if you're trying to maintain friendships, you have to act on your gut more. But I feel like it really, really falls apart when you start applying that on like to systemic issues or to large governmental things or to environmental policy or anything like that. Um, and it's very hard to get people to shift modes that work for them in their day-to-day -day life to these much more abstract things. Okay, I'm going to discuss a couple of concepts that um, appear in the series and you can just give a you know quick description. I don't want I want people to go over and see the series <laughs> okay. the way it was intended, you know, in its context. So I'm not going to make you just rehash all of it here. So we're making teasers. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Just just short, sweet. But um, what is the short, quippy, and wrong cycle? You, you talk about like a short, quippy, and wrong. I, 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 I like those three words because it's... <laughs> um, it's the tendency for uh, when someone says something... Hmm. How to how to reduce this? OK, so when you're having a conversation with someone, usually when someone on the left has a conversation with someone on the right, it seems like you will give a detailed explanation of why something they say is incorrect and they will pick a single point of your detailed explanation and say something short, quippy and wrong in response to that one piece. And now you have to give a detailed explanation of why that is wrong. And it seems like this cycle just kind of goes forever where a lot of your argument gets left on the table and they just keep saying these punchy statements that tend to stick in other people's minds better than your detailed explanation. Yeah, much more uh, good for sound bites. Yeah. And really easy to digest. Um, 
the tactic of putting you in a box, mm. I thought was a thought was a good one. And again, I know it's hard to uh, reduce, but uh, <laughs> I'll try to use fewer words. Be your best. Time. Uh, putting people in a box is just kind of about like shorthand, basically. Like if you can create, I guess it's basically a meme of oh, like we talked earlier about how social justice warrior or virtue signaling um, used to be fairly complex ideas, and now they're like really reductive memes. And it's a way of dismissing a very, very complex argument by just sticking it in a very simple box like, oh, I don't need to listen to that. That's social justice warrior talk. I don't need to listen to that. That's virtue signaling. Um, and it's a way of ignoring all the contents just because you found a box to stick it in. So, so basically, they find a reason not to listen to you by putting you in a man-hating feminist box. Yeah. Now, yeah. And one thing I like that you said, too, is, which is, I've, in my experience, very true they tend to do it the most when you're either about to really make sense or you're about to say something that they can't counter. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, that was spot on. Like that is when it comes out the most, like when they see that they're losing uh, control of the debate or about to hit a point where they can't uh, respond. Well, you know, they try to say, Oh, well, you know, you're a anti-American terrorist or you're, you're just a black lives matter person or mm. whatever. Um, and the point I try to make in the series is that, like, these are not necessarily left right things. Um, every like I'm pretty sure everyone in their life has caught themselves arguing in this way. It's more just a question of like, well, when does it happen on which side? Who does it more and who does it in more either calculated or just in context in which it's more damaging? Right. Because, like, the reason I recognize this stuff is like, oh, yeah, I totally argued like that in high school. Uh, something else too, all the outward signs of winning. Mm. Um, so displaying the outward signs of winning is if you look like a person who is winning an argument, right? Like this is kind of Trump's whole MO is so long as he always looks strong and powerful and speaks with confidence, he often seems to any onlooker like he must be winning this argument even if you actually like looked at just a transcript without seeing his bravado, you would realize like, wait, he's not saying very much of substance. Yeah. He captures all the superficial trappings, mm -hmm. external trappings of winning an argument. So then he, it almost tricks your brain into reverse engineering yeah. that he must actually be uh, winning the argument. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's very much government by feel. I like to call it is the idea that like, well, look, if somebody just feels like a good president, maybe they are and people will vote for you because they just feel good. Like, I mean, even to this day, like Democrats cannot speak ill of Reagan. Like they can't get away with that. That is political suicide. And like, we just all have to say, okay, Reagan made people feel like things were getting better. If you actually look at the numbers, things really only got better a little bit in certain areas. And in a lot of other areas, they got a lot worse. But a lot of Republicans felt like they were suffering under Carter and felt like things got better under Reagan. And that's a really, really difficult thing to talk somebody out of because it's a very, very strong feeling. But the numbers don't really bear it out. You know, a great thing you said about Reagan, um, I mean, no, a great thing about the Reagan example is I used to watch this um, show called PBS American Experience, and they did this thing with 20th century presidents where each one was a different um, president. And it's interesting to watch them in sequence because the Reagan one, right? Because Reagan was a great example of, you know, someone who captured all the trappings of um, certainty, all the trappings of moral authority, all the trappings of, uh, you know, those things that you just... Uh, described and it was interesting how fawning because pbs is something that especially like uh a lot of the hardcore right wingers like to think of as this like liberal liberal bastion of um you know touchy feely hippies and mm -hmm. nuts nuts and granola and they were way harder on jimmy carter when they got to reagan they were so worshipful in the tone you know, like yeah. you start finding yourself almost like buying into it too. Like, you know, they were like, uh, I, it was very swelling and you know, it's, 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 there's a weird admiration because they kind of get sucked into those superficial trappings themselves. A lot of the times, I mean, Trump is just so heinous that 
uh, it's hard for a liberal to get sucked into the the uh, trappings of the appearance of winning. But it's scary because if you could just dial it back a little bit, it has been proven to work. And like you said, they still have trouble um, really going in on, on Reagan to this day. Yeah, I mean, even Trump is making people on the left get softer on Reagan and get softer on George W. Bush, which is... Uh, it's really daunting to me because now it's like, so what if in eight years from now we get someone even worse than Trump? Are people going to get soft on Trump? Because I'm not going to. But they even occasionally do it now. Because do you do you remember um, a couple of good moments that Trump has had in this past year? Yeah. And all these um, pundits and all these liberal pundits and experts are saying, wow. Trump finally had a presidential moment. And it's like, what? Well, you said one speech where he didn't say anything racist. Or sexist. <laughs> yeah, like, or like he made one compromise with the Democrats. <laughs> yeah, like they're so ready to soften. Like they're just waiting to soften. Just give give us a, a, a window, you know? I, that, that blows my mind. I don't think we'll even have to wait um, eight years. Like in the, in the instant, uh, they've already shown that they're willing to do it uh this past year it's a scary it's a scary thing i mean again it's it's this idea that like that's the way the game is supposed to be played right like you want the opposition party to give credit where credit is due you want the president to like it's the way they want republicans to treat us right like when obama was in office like oh we really would have liked it if when obama compromised with the right the right praised him so now that trump is in power if he if he makes a compromise with the left we should give him praise um and it's it's always this like, let's just keep acting as though the machinery is working normally um, and maybe it will. And I, I think that's very hopeful and I don't think it's very realistic. And I think it's also tied into something, you know, to keep to keep tying it back to the series. <laughs> it's also tied into something that you trace a lot of this kind of um, discourse pathology to, which is the West Wing and. On this show, I've, you know, gone in on how a lot of these bad habits of liberals has been totally, if not created, at least very reinforced by the West Wing. And you brought up um, the effect of the West Wing, which I, which I totally love because I <laughs> totally buy into it. So I'm, I'm biased. But, you know, you said uh, the liberal fantasy of dunking on the ignorant. So as a final uh topic what is the liberal fantasy of dunking on the uh ignorant and the clip that you use i thought was a great clip it was the whole nobody sits clip, yeah. you know yeah 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 and, and and why does that never work um i think one of the things the west wing wanted to do was to scratch that particular itch is to present an idea where if there's an ignorant person and you just stand in front of them and list all the ways that they're ignorant, not only will they feel ashamed for not knowing as much as you know, but everyone else will agree with you and be like, oh, it is so obvious that you are right. And I feel like the reason why you have to write that into a TV show is because it just doesn't happen that much in the real world. Like, I mean, something I compare it to is um, is when Joseph Welch called out McCarthy on TV and he said, like, you know, at long last, have you left no sense of decency? And that like kind of was a major blow to McCarthyism. Like McCarthyism basically tanked because of McCarthy's appearance on TV. But those moments are very, very rare where someone actually just calls out fear and ignorance in just such an eloquent way that the other person is like destroyed. Their career is over after that. Most of the time, again, like that, that outward appearance of winning, like you get shown that you don't know what you're talking about. Just keep looking like you do know what you're talking about. And meanwhile, like you have these these liberals who want to dunk on people and not don't ask themselves, like, is dunking on people actually accomplishing anything? Like, it makes me feel good and it makes other liberals feel like we won. But are we are we changing any minds? Are we elevating any people who aren't being heard? Are we accomplishing anything other than like scratching this egoistic itch? Yeah, along with the West Wing, I would say that era of um, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, mm. you know, it kind of sticks in a lot of people's minds as like a golden age. Like, you know, the West Wing, Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, all these sound bites and all these 
headlines like, you know, look at um what this comedian said this time. And it's kind of funny because I saw this thing. It was like um Samantha B, Trevor Noah, and so and so. All three of them are about to go in on Trump's latest thing. And it's like, now it just feels so impotent. Like, you know, it's like we're still kind of using the same the same tactics to diminishing uh, returns. You know, it's kind of like if your alt-right playbook is kind of trying to think further along the lines, a lot of liberals are kind of doubling down on the old playbook that just proved itself outdated. You know, it's a kind of depressing thing to see. I mean, it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish, right? Like if we think of like the West Wing scene is where he's actually talking to a Dr. Laura stand in and showing that he knows way, way more about the Bible than she does and shows all the ways that she's a hypocrite. Like, I don't think that's very effective. Like you're going to you're going to dunk on a person to their face as if that's going to accomplish anything. I do think that it can be kind of useful. Like I I love uh, John Oliver um, and I really love Samantha, Samantha B. And I think they're very useful if you just think of them as people who are going to make sure that the left is properly educated. Like uh, sometimes people accuse me, like when I say, like, don't talk to the right, but by all means, talk to the left. It's like, oh, you're just preaching to the choir. And I'm like, well, if the choir is ignorant, please preach to them. Like just because somebody you can count on them to vote the right way for president doesn't mean they actually understand the issue in a robust way. And this sort of like more comedic style can be a really good way to get people on the left to understand issues in a more complex way. So I think that's useful. It's just not really a tool for combating the right so much it is is just bolstering the left. Yeah, I think an important part of it um, is to keep in perspective what it is and what it's doing and what it can do. Yeah. And that's my main problem with a lot of this stuff is around the time of when Colbert and Stewart got so big that they started having that rally to restore sanity and stuff Mm -hmm. like to me that's when it kind of was a tipping point i'm like you guys are just really turning this into um a circus now you know because you're it's becoming too self-serious like it's just starting to buy into too much of the hype as in you're what's going to save the discourse in america but if you just take it for what it is like hey this is some good comedy that uh takes a good few shots and also helps educate people like you said like there's totally a place for that and it's it's not like you know i'm not trying to throw out the baby with the bathwater, you know but i think a lot of people yeah i think a lot of people got so into overestimating what it was and what it can do like you know that moment of um, making comedians into the saviors of society and i feel like they're not uh backing away from that yeah um still yeah. Yeah. It's really just a question of like asking yourself before you do something, what are you trying to accomplish? And is this the way to accomplish it? And that's one of the biggest things I want people to take away from the series is to just think more, I guess, think more strategically about what they're doing. There's a there's a phrase that a friend of mine, um, I was on her podcast recently. It's J.D. Malandine. Uh, she does this podcast called Gaming Broadly um, or her site is Gaming Broadly. The podcast is Gaming Broadcast. Um, and she just uses the term flexibility of method. And I'm like, "Ah, I love that term. I absolutely love that. Just recognizing like, just because something does not work in this context doesn't mean it's useless. Just use it where it's useful and try to think about what is useful before you use it. And I'm out of questions, but (laughs) I just want to give you the floor to just pitch anything you want to pitch. Um, let people know what your release schedule is, what your ultimate plans are. Like if it's an open-ended, um, you know, series, just basically anything you think people uh, would like to know about this series and you in general, I'll give you the floor to take us out. Oh, thank you. Um, so yeah, the series is called the alt-right playbook and there's a lot of topics that I want to get into. Uh, so it's kind of, My channel is right now on a monthly cycle. Um, I had a pretty good success on Patreon recently, so I can now afford to release a video every month. But I do need to break up the alt-right playbook every once in a while. So like my next video is probably going to be kind of a love letter to the secret of Monkey Island. Um, But then after that, I'm probably going to get back to the alt-right playbook. And 
I probably have enough videos to see me through like a year and a half. It depends because every time I make one, sometimes I end up cannibalizing a few ideas from another video. But also every once in a while, I add a new topic to the list. So we'll see how it equals out. Um, and the long term. I wish goal, I knew. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm not going to say I wish I knew more about gaming because a lot of people who listen to this show are gamers. And yeah. <laughs> I just don't know enough to ask uh, any gaming questions of, of you. But yeah, I, I want to be. I just want to remind people that. You do have a lot of gaming content, too. So if you're into um, gaming content, check that out as well. And yeah, finish what you were saying. Yeah, I usually try to make the gaming stuff accessible to people who at least haven't played that game. Um, Anyway, the long term goal for the series is like it is kind of in a very roundabout way. Me trying to solve the problem of not knowing how to talk in a constructive way to the right. And I don't want to place undue emphasis on that because I do think that a lot of the work that the left needs to do is not so much in talking to the right as it is things like combating voter suppression and gerrymandering and prisoner disenfranchisement. Like there's a lot of things we can do to just outnumber the right as opposed to trying to sway people on the right to our side. But at the same time, I do think that conversing across the divide is at least part of the solution. And there was a point in my life where I stopped doing it because I felt like I didn't know how to do it in a way that was useful. And the series is like picking apart. Here's a thing that we tend to do that doesn't work. Here's a thing that they do that does work. Let's talk about how these things butt heads against each other. And the way I want to end the series, if I can, is to have a video that says, so here are the things we've learned. Here are things we can do that might actually work. And I don't know when that video is going to come out. And I still don't know all of what it's going to say, because the more I learn, the more the things that I think are the right thing become more complicated or more nuanced. But that's the overall goal. And it may take me like a year and a half or two years to get there. But that's the series. Great, great. So uh, thanks for joining the show today. And uh, great luck with the rest of the series. I will keep looking forward to it and signal boosting it. But uh, yeah, I mean, great job so far. And thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. All right. So take care and be good. (laughs) You too.